Hello and welcome to the good old days of radio show. This is John Tefteller, your host, and we are here on our Tuesday programming with uh, show number four with Mr. Keith Scott from Down Under in Australia. Um, it's Hello er- there, folks. <laughs> it's early morning where he is, and it's early afternoon where we are, and we're in the future, and he's in the past, or he's in the past, and we're in the future. <laughs> Something like that. I don't understand all the time zones, but we are together via the miracles of the internet. Keith Scott is who I am calling for the purposes of this show, the man of a thousand voices. That's what he's uh, known for, is doing uh, comic uh, voices and regular voices and all kinds of fun things in Australia and in movies in the United States, too, with Rocky and Bullwinkle and George of the Jungle and whatever else you've done here. We are taking a look at Cartoon Voices in Vintage Radio, and I'm going to throw Keith for a loop and tell him that before we do our official radio show for the day, producer Daniel has dug up something a little bit special. You may or may not have ever heard this. You can tell us now if you've heard it. But apparently, back in about 1974, a fan who was very much uh, a fan of Dawes Butler wrote a fan letter to Mr. Butler, and he got a response. And in addition to the letter that he got back from Dawes Butler, Dawes Butler sent him a tape. Do you know what this is, Keith? Oh, boy, if I, I don't know how this would have been dug up, but if it's the one he sent me in 74. Uh... This tape was sent to Brian Kistler. Brian Kistler is the 14-year-old fan who runs a website called waltertetley.com, dedicated to Walter Tetley and um, other great voices of radio. And uh, Mr. Kistler gave us permission to use this here on the good old days of radio show. Um, <laughs> so let's listen to that, and then you can tell me afterwards what it was, if you know. So getting back to your letter, you mentioned uh, voices that you liked that I did. You said your favorite is Captain Crunch. Well, Captain Crunch is one of my favorite characters, too, you know. Oh, yeah, that's based on a, well, it's like a, a much broader version of a marvelous uh, entertainer and comedian named Charlie Butterworth. And uh, he uh, was very good years and years ago. But that's kind of a basis. I have a much broader extension uh, is what Captain Crunch is. But here's a little uh, poem I have for you from Captain Crunch. Little Jack Horner sat in the corner eating his Christmas pie. Along came a spider and sat down beside him and said, uh, uh, Pardon me, I'm in the wrong poem. And you mentioned Hokey Wolf. The Hokey Wolf is always looking for the chickens. So the farmer won't have any chickens because Hokey Wolf will have them. <laughs> and that's the way he likes it. And Dingling likes it too. <laughs> but Hokey Wolf is really a bad man. Mm-hmm. And you mentioned Top Cat. Well, I don't do Top Cat. That's done by Arnold Stang. <clears throat> Very good comedian, a friend of mine. Uh... Well, you said, which is your favorite? Well, I think it's Captain Crunch. Captain Crunch is another character that I dig very much. I don't know why. I guess it's because it, I can interpolate. No matter what the writer would write, I would read around the lines. And that's uh, Mr. Jinx. Uh, you know, because uh, Mr. Jinx is the kind of character who is uh, not overly bright. 
but uh, he considers himself so, you know. He thinks he is very erudite, and uh, he has a lot of idiosyncrasies. Uh, the main one being that he likes to clobber meese with a broom. And uh, I don't know, I just uh, sort of get a kick out of uh, Mr. Jinx. He makes much ado out of nothing. He can never say anything simply, you know, he has to uh, elaborate. Um, Dixie, I'm one of the meese, he always chases and clobbers with a broom. Yeah, well, uh, who, who told you to talk? You know what I mean? Uh, out, out, out. Shh. <laughs> And Bill Scott, you said, uh, said none are hard, because if something is hard to do, then you don't do it well. Well, <laughs> they're not really hard. I sort of agree with uh, Bill. i tell you what it is. A lot of people ask me about doing voices. Well, you don't do voices. You do characters. And when you do the character, you feel it physically all through your body. Like when I'm doing Yogi Bear, my eyebrows go up. And my shoulders go up, and I'm very ebullient. And I talk like this. Yay! I can feel the character going through my whole body. And it's a bright, ebullient type of a guy. Whereas Quick Drama Grow is a dumbbell. And he talks like that and is not overly bright at all. But Baba Louie is his sidekicks. And he loves Quickstra, but he's much smarter than Quickstra, don't you think? I'll do the thinning around here. Well, I feel all these things physically. I mean, if I was made up to be a Western character, not a horse, but just a Western character, I would move like quick draw. I'd be bow-legged and, I don't know, it'd just be a thing. If I was Babu Louie, I would have a little suit and my eyes would be bright and I would be very very simple in the way I moved, very quiet. And, uh, Snagglepuss, he's an actor, a bad actor, a ham actor even. Heavens to Murgatroyd. And he... He fools around all over the place, moving his arms this way and that way, looking from right to left. And, uh... Molly Gator's a very silly guy, you know what I mean? His eyebrows go up, too, but he's not like Yogi Bear. He's not that exuberant. You know, Roy Jetson is just a nice little kid, you know, and not Jetson's. And that's just the way he talks. And Lamsey is similar, but he's a different character. They're not just voices, they're characters. He says, It's the wolf! It's the wolf! That's who it is, the wolf. It's the wolf! And, uh, I did Baba Louie for you. Another little voice is, uh, Blabbermouse. Uh, this is Super Snoopin', the world's greatest private eye, and winner of this year's Modesty Award. And I'm Blabbermouse's assistant. This is the same little voice as, as little Lamsley or Baba Louie, but this is a voice where I talk like this with a thing in my cheeks, whereas Baba Louie talks Mexican, you see? It is the difference between the two of us, but basically it's on the same level. We're using the same music, but we're putting different words and different ways of talking on there. You see what I mean? And Augie Doggy. Oh, my dear old father of the year. Please let me have a horse for a friend and bring him home as a pet. So they're all in the same tone, you see, but they're different characters. And uh, Huckleberry Hound is a very easygoing type of character. Now, Huck, you know, wouldn't hurt nobody. He's just an easygoing type of fella. Everybody takes advantage of. See, when I was young, I was poor. My folks was poor. And we didn't have no money, neither. And that's the worst kind of poor. 
I used to go next door, you know, and ask the lady for a piece of bread. I always asked for French toast. I was poor, but I was proud. And you know them rich kids at school, they all got to have chocolate milk. But I couldn't afford it. I had to have white milk. But I fooled those rich kids. You know what I done? I put mud in my milk. Looked just like chocolate. Couldn't nobody tell the difference. Except me. I had to drink it. Yeah. So, but you see the character that comes out? Each one has a different character. It isn't just a voice. Uh, Huck talks a little slowly, and Yogi has an ebullient rhythmic pattern the way he talks, but they're all different, and they are characters, but I don't think any of them are really hard. I can believe Mel Blanc when he said Yosemite Sam, because I've gotten to the point where I don't like to do characters that strain my voice, because if I have to do two characters in a show, and one is a little guy like Augie Doggy, and the other is a gruff voice, or Lamsey, or whatever... If I do too much of the rough voice, then I can't do the little voice. So I just bow out and say, get somebody else to do it. Uh, let's see. Clutcher. I guess I did do Clutcher. And Jinx the Cat, you mentioned. And uh, Top Cat. Elroy Jetson. Oh, yes, and the prince in the Fractured Fairy Tale. That's one of my favorite characters also. <laughs> oh, yes, I'm quite fond of him. <laughs> yes, and I did do Jackie Gleason and also the Art Carney character, in that uh, Warner Brothers cartoon. I did uh, the Art Carney character, and Jackie Gleason and June Parade did Alice. So now you've learned something, haven't you? I didn't do Chopper, the dog. I did Fibber Fox. Oh, yes, Fibber Fox. And I love Jackie Doodle, especially for dinner. <laughs> Not as a guest, as the entree. But a fellow named Vance Kolbig did Chopper. And uh, when I send you the card, you'll see some other characters that I do. You know, like another character that I liked. He wasn't a big character, but I enjoyed doing him because I like dialects and I like Cockney. Was uh, Captain Skyhook in the Space Cadets. Oh, yes, you know what I mean. I wanted to get that treasure map from those kids so I could have that treasure all by myself. You know, <laughs> and I'm quite mean and nasty. I like all dialects. I like the French dialect. I love it. I love the sound of it. It is a wonderful way to form words and uh, expressions. And German is great. Oh, well, you could be a German very simply, but you must do this with your ear. You hear the sounds of the actual people. Oh, you know who are Americans, but who have a little accent left. <laughs> And that's what you do with dialects. But you must have the ear. It's very difficult to learn it by rote. Okay, was that a uh, tape sent to you, Keith? No, no. That uh, that was more, it sounded like a, a super fan who loved his voices because I, I already knew that Arnold Stang was Top Cat, so it wouldn't have been me. But uh, no, that's that's um, that's a terrific demonstration of, of uh, Doris Butler's incredible range and it proves why he was the king of tv cartoons in the early days for hanna barbera uh it was just like he was literally the star voice in every installment that they that they made there for several years just a very nice man also if you ever met Dawes Butler, yes was, i, I uh, did yeah. um at the same um i think it was a pacific pioneer broadcaster's luncheon for stan freeberg actually oh yeah that was the one where i think stan was launching the cd version of uh, usa the history of america yes 
And I think Norman Corwin was the MC for that uh, luncheon. Boy, you remember this better than I do. Were you there or you just oh, heard I it? Had, I had a tape of it. Uh, the, <laughs> the, Marty, Marty Halperin gave me a tape of the whole luncheon when uh, okay. I told him about my interest. <laughs> okay, well, that was nice of him. He didn't give out too many things, but <laughs> that was nice of him. Yeah. Um, <laughs> okay, well, yeah, no, we didn't know if you'd heard that or not. I'd never heard it, and uh, producer Daniel found it and said we should surprise you with it, and apparently it was a surprise. I think it's so. terrific, and Thank, thank you, Daniel. And, and uh, I think it's great, and, and it's very relevant to the uh, first show that we're doing today. Okay. Tell us about that. It's CBS Radio Workshop, right? Yes. Uh, as I mentioned in the preview last time, that it's, uh, it's kind of um, almost very dark humor in this because it's a story about the, the most melancholy author of them all, Edgar Allan Poe, but it's done in a, in a light, um, almost gothically humorous fashion. In fact, the, the, the lead character in the Poe story is called Toby Dammit, which really was uh, a little cheeky back in those days to, <laughs> Toby, to even use that name. Toby Dammit, okay. Yeah, D, but it would have been spelled D-A-M-M-I-T. But anyway, it's uh, it's filled with uh, people who did um, animation work as well as radio. And uh, and this, is, of course, is in the very late stages of radio. It's uh, in the same era that the Stan Freeberg show is airing in, in the summer of 57. And it uh, stars as the narrator playing Edgar Allan Poe as the great John Daner, who, of course... Uh, was um, just a year away from doing his starring role on Frontier Gentleman, the great Western series that's beloved by radio collectors. And uh, along with him, we do have Dawes Butler as the adult Toby in the story. And uh, Eleanor Audley, who was a great uh, character actress, and she did two leading roles in animation movies that are very important, two Disney feature films. She was the evil stepmother in Cinderella, and the uh, the crazed uh, queen in um, Sleeping Beauty, and uh, also, you know, just a, a great character actress in radio. She did a lot of escape and shows like that. Let's see, even Howard McNear is in this, uh, who, of course, uh, all radio buffs know as the great Doc from Gunsmoke. Uh, it's just filled with great voices. Even uh, the little baby squeals are done by a gal called Leon Ledoux, who did... Uh, um, you know, the babies in um, in the Blondie series and lots of cartoons where she did little tiny voices. So it's 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 an unusual presentation for the... But then again, the CBS Radio Workshop was an unusual series. As you know, it was, uh, it was a, a, a rejig of the old Columbia Workshop from the uh, late 30s and 40s. And uh, it really proved that, that CBS and uh, Paley were always, from the beginning to the end of that... Uh, radio era always willing to have cbs do um, sustaining material and to do experimental work uh i think they uh, they they were hard-nosed businessmen but they also had a love of the medium so i think they were a little generous from time to time with some of the creative people yeah well great um what's the air date on this uh this is july 28 1957 okay yeah same Never same time Bet as same time as the stan freeberg show oh yeah so, uh, i think they were concurrent so freeberg was the last comedy that was on radio right 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 and this would have been one of the last dramas although suspense and a few others went on into the early 60s but uh, yeah i think suspense suspense johnny dollar and gunsmoke were the, the final ones that sputtered along towards the bitter end but uh this one was um 
it it went i think uh, for almost two year an almost two year run of uh, of just uh, very experimental uh, uses of radio and uh, i think it was this second series once this series began in 56 was the first time i think it might have even been the the guy who instigated the series william frug uh who came up with the now cliche line but it's brilliant um calling radio the theater of the mind yes that's the that's on their intro and i i yeah i, I did know that bill frug did that bill frug in later years was a, a teacher at ucla ah um, yeah, he was. He, he was very again a real enthusiast for the medium. In fact, uh, I remember. I think it was. It might have been a Spurdvac uh, uh, presents that he was a guest, uh, where he he said he he and Elliot Lewis were a couple of the people who, when TV came in, they made it quite clear we're not really interested. We we much prefer radio. <laughs> yeah, well, <laughs> I prefer radio too, but that doesn't stop <laughs> radio from going away and TV from dominating, unfortunately. But yeah. whatever. But and that's our do- job. It's dominating now with with much dumber stuff than it's ever dominated with. <laughs> well, it's our job to distract people from their televisions and bring them over Definitely. and listen to these great radio shows. All right, exactly. from July. Uh, whatever, July 1957, uh, the CBS Radio Workshop, Never Bet the Devil Your Head. Great title. I, I haven't heard this, so let's, let's listen. My name is Poe, Edgar Allan Poe. I write stories. Charges have been brought against me by certain ignoramuses, that I have never written a tale with a moral. By way of mitigating these ridiculous accusations, I offer the following unusual history, a history about whose moral there can be no question whatsoever. For you can see the moral in its very title, Never Bet the Devil Your Head. And note, please, that I do not bring in the lesson at the tag end of the fable as uh, others are wont to do. Very well. Here, then, I denounce my critics and beg no favor other than your close attention. From Hollywood, the CBS Radio Workshop, dedicated to man's imagination, the theater of the mind. The world too long thought of Edgar Allan Poe as a door misogynist who concerned himself with black cats, gold bugs, pits, pendulums, and murder... Few realize, and fewer would believe, that this man of gloom had a sense of humor. This, the workshop now seeks to prove, in William N. Robeson's production of Edgar Allan Poe's satiric story, Never Bet the Devil Your Head, starring John Daner, with music conducted by Amerigo Marino, and with Jack Johnstone as guest director. It is not my design to vituperate my deceased friend, Toby Dammit. He was a sad dog, it is true, and a dog's death it was that he died. But he himself was not to blame for his vices. They grew out of a personal defect in his mother. I recall a conversation I had with her when Toby was a mere babe in arms. Duties to a well-regulated mind, Mr. Poe, are always pleasures. It is my duty, and therefore my pleasure, to see that as quickly as possible my son learns the difference between right and wrong. But must you flog him so, Mrs. Dammit? 
Babies like tough steaks are invariably the better for beating. <laughs> It drives the evil propensities out. But my dear woman, my dear woman, you have the misfortune to be left-handed. I do not consider left-handedness a misfortune. No, you failed to understand me. Madam, a child flogged left-handedly had better be left unflogged. And deign to tell me why? The world revolves from right to left. If each blow in the proper direction drives out an evil propensity, it follows that every thump in an opposite one knocks its quota of wickedness in. That is a specious argument that does not warrant a reply, except perhaps this. I was all too often present at Toby's chastisements, and even by the way he kicked, I could perceive that he was getting worse and worse every day. At last I saw, through tears in my eyes, that there was no hope for the villain at all, and one day when he had been cuffed until he grew black in the face, that no effect had been produced beyond that of making him wriggle himself into a fit, I could stand it no longer, but went down on my knees forthwith and, uplifting my voice, made a prophecy. A prophecy of his ruin. For the fact is that his precocity in vice was awful. At five months of age, he got into such passions that he was unable to articulate. At six months, I caught him gnawing at a pack of playing cards. At seven months, he was in the constant habit of catching and kissing female babies. At eight months, he peremptorily refused to put his signature to the temperance pledge. No, no, no! Thus he went on increasing in iniquity month after month, year after year, until in his youth... Mama, it is my desire to wear mustaches, and furthermore, I'll bet I can grow them. By the bill, book and candle, by Job's comforter, I'll bet I can. As you see, he had even contracted a propensity for cursing and swearing, and for backing his assertions with bets. Not that he actually laid wages, no, I will do my friend the justice to say that he would as soon have laid eggs. With him, the thing was a mere formula, nothing more. You see, he was detestably poor. Another vice which the physical deficiency in his mother had entailed upon him. And this was the reason, no doubt, that his expletive expressions about betting seldom took a pecuniary turn. It was usually, I'll bet you what you please, or I'll, I'll, I'll bet you what you dare, or I'll bet you a trifle, or else, more significantly still, I'll bet the devil my head. At all events, through this most ungentlemanly practice, the ruin which I predicted for Toby Dammit overtook him at last. For indeed, the fashion had grown with his growth and strengthened with his strength, to the point that when he finally came to be a man, he could hardly utter a sentence without interlarding it with a, a proposition to gamble. Devil me, Mr. Poe. It is and remains my contention that these United States shall serve as an arrow to the target of liberty. Uh, my wager on that, sir, I'll bet you what you please. Toby, Toby, this habit of yours is an immoral one, and I feel constrained to tell you so. Pish posh, Mr. Paul. It is vulgar. I beg you to believe me. Twaddle. It is discountenanced by society. I say nothing but the truth. Tush! Gambling has been forbidden by an act of Congress. <laughs> I entreat you, I implore you. Utter foolishness. Then, by heaven, I shall have to knock some sense into you. <laughs> that, sir, was a, was a dastardly thing to do. Should you venture to try such an experiment again, I shall 
necessarily return in kind, and you will rue the result. I'll bet the devil my head you will. Yes, there it was again. The quintessence of his abominable expressions. I'll bet the devil my head. But there was nothing more I could do. I quit the scene in desperation and in sorrow. However, I could not evade the fact that Mr. Toby Dammit's soul was in a perilous state. I resolved to bring all my eloquence into play to save it. I vowed to serve him as St. Patrick. In the Irish Chronicle is said to have served the toad. That is to say, awaken him to a sense of his situation. So, I addressed myself to the task. I remonstrated with him, but to no purpose. I demonstrated in vain. I entreated, he smiled. I implored, he laughed. I preached, he sneered. I threatened, he swore. I pulled his nose. He blew it. And once again... Uh, I'll bet the devil my head that taught you a lesson. Toby, have you considered the gross impropriety of a man betting his brains like banknotes? Uh-uh. You have I? adopted this mode of wager, I'll bet the devil my head with a pertinacity and exclusiveness of devotion that displeases me no less than it surprises me. Now, the truth is... I'll bet the devil my head I'm going to get another lecture from you. The truth is, there is something in the air with which you are wont to give utterance to this offensive expression, something in your manner of enunciation which, for want of a more definite term, I must be permitted to call queer. Oh? It is your soul I am considering, Toby. Otherwise, you must believe this. I would not be speaking to you of these matters when I am so aware of your distaste for them. For some moments, he remained silent, merely looking me inquisitively in the face, but... Presently, he threw his head to one side and elevated his eyebrows to a great extent. Then he spread out the palms of his hands and shrugged up his shoulders. Then he winked with the right eye. He repeated the operation with the left. Then he shut them both up very tight. Then he opened them both so very wide that I became seriously alarmed for the consequences. And applying his thumb to his nose, he made a disgusting, indescribable movement with the rest of his fingers. Finally, setting his arms akimbo, he condescended to reply. Mr. Poe, I will be obliged to you if you would hold your tongue. I wish none of your advice. I despise your insinuations, equivocations, adumbrations. In short, sir, your entire peroration. I am of sufficient age to take care of myself. Or is it your misconception to consider me still an infant? Sir, do you mean to impugn my character? Is it your intention to insult me? Are you a fool, sir? Tell me, is your maternal parent aware of your absence from the domiciliary residence? I beg you. I put this question to you as a man of veracity, and I will bind myself to abide by your reply. I demand once more, does your mother know you're out? <laughs> your confusion betrays you. I'll bet the devil my head she does not. And so I bid you, Mr. Poe, good day. He left my presence in quite undignified haste. It were well for him that he did so. My anger had been aroused. For once, I would have taken him up on his insulting wager, bet the devil my head indeed. And I would have won for Satan, Mr. Dammit's little head, because, you see, the fact is my whereabouts was known by my mother. Ah, well... It was in the pursuance of my duty that I had been insulted, so I bore the insult like a man. 
and it now seemed to me that I had done all that could be required of me in the case of this miserable individual. I resolved to trouble him no longer with my counsel, but to leave him to his conscience and himself. But I must confess that although I forbore to intrude with my advice, I could not quite bring myself to give up his society altogether. Worse, I even went so far as to humor some of his less reprehensible propensities, and there were times when I found myself lauding his wicked jokes, uh, but with tears in my eyes, so profoundly did it grieve me to hear his evil talk. <laughs> oh, by the great horned toad, Mr. Poe, your aptitude for companionship, without censure or reprimand, has taken a turn for the better. It puts me in mind of the gentleman from New York, Mr. Greeley who importuned a man of tender years to seek the western shores, remember? Yet, to my knowledge, he never made the trek himself. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yes. Unsought advice is like a woman left waiting at the church. Uncalled for. <laughs> well, perhaps. Uh, Zounds in hellion, sir. I'll bet the devil my head if you cannot agree on that. Well, all right, Toby. <laughs> 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 Toby, 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 what's to become of you? Oh, your concern is, uh, you know, touching, Mr. Poe, but it smacks of your former attitude, and I shall have none of it. None, I say. Come, it's too fine a day to spend it on peradventure and mayhap pursuits. Let us stroll the roadside in the country lane, commune with nature in her pristine glory, seek the unfettered pleasures of the here and the now. Well, sir? Very well, Toby. Thus it was that we strolled out together, arm in arm, our route leading us in the direction of a river. Ah, there, Mr. Poe. You see, beyond the stream, that field of fluorescence. Would not the Roman goddess herself exclaim over its perfection? Hmm. It is beautiful. Beautiful? <laughs> By the sons of Saul, your words make a beggary of faultless grandeur. My friend... Your jaundiced eye requires closer appraisal, and your stopped-up nose a clearer whiff. But it's only a field of trees and flowers. I can see it very well from here. Stuff and nonsense. If you possessed a wit of perspicacity, that same jaundiced eye would indicate a covered bridge within a stone's throw. We shall cross it, go beyond it, and wander lonely as a cloud. Uh, to steal a phrase from one of the English greats. Come now. <laughs> The bridge was roofed over by way of protection from the weather, and the archway, having but few windows, was thus uncomfortably dark and echoed resoundingly. As we entered the passage, the contrast between the external glare and the interior gloom struck heavily upon my spirits. Not so upon those of the happy Dammit, who offered to bet the devil his head that I was hipped. He seemed to be in unusual good humor. He was excessively lively, so much so that I entertained I know not what of uneasy suspicion. A certain species of austere Merry Andrewism seemed to beset my friend and caused him to make quite a tom fool of himself. I'm a bird! I fly! Whee! Nothing would serve him but wriggling and skipping about under and over everything that came in his way, now shouting out and now lisping out all manner of odd little and big words. I really could not make up my mind whether to kick him or to pity him. And the woman 
At length, having passed nearly across the bridge, we approached the termination of the footway when our progress was impeded by a turnstile of some height. Through this, I made my way quietly, but this turn would not serve the turn of Mr. Dammit. Hold. Uh, this... this mechanism, Mr. Poe! <laughs> Are we cattle to be impeded in this manner? It's merely a turnstile. I passed through it without it's any... While me, I defy it. <laughs> How can you defy an inanimate object? By leaping over it. Uh, not only shall I leap over it, but I shall perform a buck and wing at the apex of my jump. Oh, but Toby, it's nearly five feet in height. <laughs> a bagatelle. Oh, you're a braggadocio. You cannot do it, and you know you can't. No? I'll bet the devil my head I can. You hear me? I'll bet the devil my head. I was about to reply, notwithstanding my previous resolution, with some remonstrance against his impiety, when suddenly I heard, close at my elbow, a slight cough, which sounded very much like the ejaculation... Ahem. I started, and looked about me in surprise. My glance, at length, fell into a nook in the framework of the bridge, and there, upon the figure of a little old gentleman, or shall we say, venerable aspect, yes and of reverend appearance, for he not only had on a full suit of black, but his shirt was perfectly clean, and the collar turned very neatly down over a white cravat, while his hair was parted in front like a girl's. His hands were clasped pensively together over his stomach, and his two eyes were carefully rolled up into the top of his head. Upon observing him more closely, I perceived that he wore a black silk apron over his small clothes, and this was a thing which I thought very odd. Before I had time to make any remark, however, upon so singular a circumstance, he interrupted me. <laughs> to this second observation, I was not immediately prepared to reply. The fact is, remarks of this laconic nature are nearly unanswerable. I am not ashamed to say, therefore, that I turned to Mr. Toby Dammit for assistance. Dammit, what are you about? Don't you hear? The gentleman says, ahem. I looked sternly at my friend while I thus addressed him, for, to say the truth, I felt particularly puzzled. And when a man is particularly puzzled, he must knit his brows and look savage, else he looks like a fool. Toby! Damn it! Uh, although this sounded very much like an oath, believe me, nothing was further from my thoughts. Damn it! The gentleman says, ahem! I do not attempt to defend my remark on the score of profundity. I did not think it profound myself, but I have noticed that the effect of our speeches is not always proportionate to their importance in our own eyes. But if I had knocked Toby on the head with the turnstile itself, he could hardly have been more discomfited than when I addressed him with those simple words. You don't say so. Are you quite sure he said that? Well, at all events, I'm for it now, and may as well put a bold face upon the matter. Here goes then. Ahem! 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 Strangely, the little old gentleman seemed pleased. God only knows why. He left his station at the nook of the bridge, came forward with a gracious air, took Dammit by the hand, and shook it cordially, looking all the while straight up in his face with an air of the most unadulterated benignity it is possible for the mind of man to imagine. Finally, he spoke. Well, well, Toby Dammit. Ah, uh, that's right, good sir. And what think you of my assertion and my wager? That you can leap the turnstile? 
Correct you are, and perform with consummate skill a buck and wing at the apex of my leap. I am quite sure you will win your wager, damn it. But we are obliged to have a trial, you know, for the sake of mere form. Ahem. <clears throat> a, a trial, you say? Ahem. <clears throat> my friend took off his coat with a deep sigh and tied a pocket handkerchief around his waist. He produced an unaccountable alteration in his countenance by twisting up his eyes and bringing down the corners of his mouth. <coughs> I did not express myself aloud, but I thought this is a quite a remarkable silence on the part of Toby, dammit, and is no doubt a consequence of his verbosity upon a previous occasion. I wonder if he has forgotten the many unanswerable questions which he propounded to me so fluently on the day when I gave him my last lecture. Ahem! The old gentleman now took him by the arm and led him more into the shade of the bridge, a few paces back from the turnstile. My good fellow, I make it a point of conscience to allow you this much run. Wait here till I take my place by the stile, so that I may see whether you go over it handsomely and don't omit any flourishes of the buck and wing. A mere form, you know. I will say, one, two, three, and away! And mind you start at the word, away. The little gentleman stood there a moment, looking quietly at Toby as though appraising him. Then he turned, walked away, and took his position by the stile. Again he paused a moment, as if in profound reflection, then looked up and smiled very slightly, tightened the strings of his apron, and took a long, long look at Dammit. I thought to myself, what right has the old gentleman to make any other gentleman jump? Who is he? If he asks me to jump, I won't do it, and that's flat, and I don't care who the devil he is. The devil he... But what I said, or what I thought, or what I heard, occupied only an instant. The black-suited little man gave the word as agreed upon. One, two, three, and away! I saw Toby run nimbly and spring grandly from the floor of the bridge, cutting the most awful flourishes with his legs as he went up. I saw him high in the air, buck and winging it to admiration. I thought it a singular thing that he did not continue to go over, but the whole leap was the affair of a moment. And before I had a chance to make any profound reflection, down came Mr. Dammit on the flat of his back, on the same side of the stile from which he had started. At the same instant, I saw the old gentleman running off at the top of his speed. But ere leaving us, he had caught and wrapped up in his apron something that fell heavily into it from the darkness of the arch just over the turnstile. At all this, I was much astonished, but I had no leisure to think, for Mr. Dammit lay particularly still, and I concluded that his feelings had been hurt and that he stood in need of my assistance. I hurried up to him and found that he had received what might be termed a serious injury. Quite serious. Quickly, I threw open an adjacent window of the bridge and the sad truth flashed upon me. About five feet above the top of the turnstile, there extended a flat iron bar that served to strengthen the structure. With the edge of this brace, it appeared evident, the neck of my unfortunate friend had come precisely in contact and alas, the truth is, he had been deprived of his head. He did not long survive his terrible loss. Despite the efforts of the physicians, he grew worse, and at length, 
died. So I bedewed his grave with my tears, worked a bar sinister on his family escutcheon, and assumed the general expenses of his modest funeral. Exit Toby Dammit. Toby Dammit, a lesson to all riotous livers, and proof absolute of my initial assertion that every tale should have, must have, does have a moral. You have just heard John Daner in the CBS Radio Workshop's production of Never Bet the Devil Your Head under the guest direction of Jack Johnstone. It was adapted for radio by Alan Botzer with music composed and conducted by Amerigo Marino. Heard in the supporting cast were Eleanor Audley, Leon Ledoux, Dawes Butler, Richard Beals, and Howard McNear. Next week, from New York, the workshop will present The Heart of Man, a dramatization of a surgical operation in which the heart itself is the principal actor. Hugh Douglas speaking. This is the CBS Radio Network. A charming little satirical show. Yeah, that was very strange. And that music stays in your head, too. Yeah, the CBS Radio Workshop had great, great music in the background. They came up with a different oh, yeah. different thing for each well, one. That was, that was, and, and the interesting thing there is it's like, like only one year from what, he, what Doris Butler was talking about. Uh, a year later, it was when Mr. Jinx, uh, the cat, you know, made, its, uh, made his debut in, on the Huckleberry Hound show. And um, he used that Mr. Jinx voice for uh, the adult Toby in that story. Yeah, he did. Like, I'll, I'll bet the devil my head I will. <laughs> <laughs> oh, and also notice in that one one final cartoon connection when uh, when Toby became a young boy and could talk, it was Dick Beals who, uh, of course, you know, everyone remembers as Speedy Alka-Seltzer for years in, in commercials. Ah, okay. I think... Um, in that period, they were getting a lot of radio guys and giving them a show each. Elliot Lewis did just one on the on the workshop called Nightmare, and uh, and William N. Robeson, of course, was taken on as a producer of the series. But what I found interesting about the CBS Radio Workshop is that uh, you know um, once it got underway, uh, they would do alternating weeks, one from New York and one from uh, Hollywood. So it gave both coasts a lot of experimental uh, opportunities. All right. Um, interesting. Before we close out here, um, you, you have an opportunity to bring up your book, Cartoon Voices of the Golden Age, and tell the yes. listeners for this week all about that. Well, yes, uh, this is a, a book for, uh, for anyone who's interested in uh, all of the people who did animation voices for the first 30 years in theatrical cartoons and who were never given screen credit, aside from Mel Blanc, who was contracted. 
There were so many other voices that sound familiar, but uh, nobody knows who they were. And after 30 years of research, it resulted in this book where a lot of these people are finally named and uh, photographs are supplied of them. Uh, and uh, it's uh, it's basically a reference book that covers the uh, the history of, of animation, talky animation from the sound era onwards, from 1928 right up to about 1970s, the cutoff when TV had totally taken over all animation. So uh, it's a reference book too, because there's a volume two that has a, a filmography section with hundreds of cartoons and, and points out a lot of the character voices and, and even the roles that they played. Uh, so um, old-time animation buffs who also love old-time radio, consider getting uh, this book uh, either on bearmanamedia.com, that's the publisher, or Amazon and other of the usual outlets. Okay. Well, plug great. over. Plug, <laughs> plug, plug over. Okay. Um, all right. Here's a programming note. Uh, next Tuesday is 4th of July. Uh, so we are going to pause our delving into cartoon voices for radio with our guest, Keith Scott. We're going to pause that for one week and uh, have a uh, 4th of July programming for next Tuesday. And we will pick up again with Keith Scott uh, the following Tuesday and continue on until we get to the end of the series here. So just a note, if you're if you're wanting to hear more Keith Scott, he's not going away next, next week. He's just uh, taking a quick vacation for 4th of July. So... All right, uh, that's it for the good old days of radio show for today. Back next week with a 4th of July celebration. And of course, uh, don't forget our Thursday programs where we do all the weird, strange, unusual things. Um, suspense, Lights Out, all those fun, uh, crazy horror shows and science fiction shows. Those are our Thursday shows and Tuesdays are comedy, drama, and variety. And uh, this is uh, a series with uh, Keith Scott on cartoon voices and radio and how they all crossed and intersected for all those years when things were great. <laughs> okay, uh, back next week, and this is John Tefteller. Thanks to Keith Scott for appearing on the show again. Keith will be back in two weeks, and we'll have more. So until then, goodbye. <laughs>